0: our series right now is cast the characters where we're talking about old testament characters and we're looking at things that are in their lives that are very applicable to the things that we walk through there is a science fiction writer his name is Orson Scott Card now you may not be familiar with him you might be familiar with one of the one of his works was Ender's Game they turned it into a movie Ender's Shadows another part of his writing He made a statement I thought it was really fascinating. I want to begin with it today. Now listen to this, it's just fascinating. Do you know why Satan is so angry all the time? Because whenever he works a particularly clever bit of mischief, God uses it to serve his own righteous purposes. So in the long run, God always wins. Yes. In the short run, though it can be uncomfortable. God always accomplishes purposes and it can be uncomfortable in the short run but God's going to do something. So here's a phrase we're going to use a couple of times during the course of our talk together, our time together. God will accomplish his purposes. In the long term, even though it can be uncomfortable in the short term, and really, I can think of no other character where we can see this come to life than in the life of the character we're going to talk about today. His name's Joseph. He's an extraordinary person. In fact, I would just say he's one of my favorite characters in Scripture. I, have a, I just have made, I feel like there's just, I don't know, I feel like there's a connection. That sounds a little like I've had opportunity to talk to him. I haven't, but it just feels like there's a connection with what he walked through and some things that we've experienced. And the anchor verse for our series is Romans chapter fifteen and verse four, because it's really important that we do not dismiss these Old Testament stories. They're there for a reason. Paul says, "For everything that was written, in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we we would we might have hope." And that's what we that's what we discover. These were real people, real events, and we can learn. We can be taught by it, we can be encouraged, we can receive endurance and hope through it. So Joseph, Joseph, I wonder what crosses our minds when the word betrayal is used. We might think of a traitor, for example. Uh, We might think of uh, being unfaithful in a relationship. Uh, Deception, distrust. I think there's a lot of different words that we use to define the word betrayal. Betrayal is one of the most painful human experiences. When we discover that someone we've trusted, that we have put our our hopes in, when they hurt us, the reality of rug of our life is just pulled right from under us. It hurts. Because what happens is, betrayal happens in the family room, it happens in the classroom, it happens in the boardroom and every other room that you can possibly think of. Betray, betrayal happens to all of us. Betrayal means being unfaithful. It means to disappoint the hopes and expectations of someone, to be disloyal. Tennessee Williams, this is what he wrote. And listen to this carefully. We have, we have to distrust each other. We have to distrust each other. It's our only defense against betrayal. What a cynical way to view life. That I have to distrust you because if I don't, I have no defense against betrayal. I don't want to live that way. I'm sorry, I don't want to live that way. Stephen, Stephen Deitz said this. Betrayal is the willful slaughter of hope. And what, what strikes me about that phrase is this word, willful is that there is intent to betray. There's intent to hurt. There's intent to rob us of hope. Again, I don't want to live that way. There's got to be a better way. When we see the word betrayal or we think about being betrayed, we often immediately go to relationships where a relationship is broken. Maybe between a husband and a wife, one has betrayed the other. And because, because of that, there's been all types of fallout and hurt and wounds. But the reality is when you talk about betrayal, it extends far beyond relationships. It deals with vicious gossip, abandonment, uh, where, where trust then can just crumble suddenly within our lives. We're, our innocence is shattered. And we are left, we're left wondering what happened. How did, how did this ever occur? What, what's going on? We look to God, we might blame God, we blame everybody. We, we're trying to put our arms around what has happened. We just can't do it. Betrayal, betrayal hurts, stings. And let me just say, it lasts a long time, the, the hurt of it, the residual effect. Some years ago, uh, Marcy and I were, had moved from one location to another. Uh, we, were, we had taken the role of a lead pastor's position in a really solid place. Or at least we thought it was really solid. Uh, that's, what we, that's what we understood it to be. Went through about an 11-month process to actually take the role and the lead of this particular congregation. And really, for the first four years, uh, things went things went really well. I mean, we had some really good things. God was doing good stuff. Year number five started well, but about July, about mid-year, things began to turn. And there were just it was one challenge after another. And the challenges, I, you look, I look back at it, and I look at those challenges, and I go, really, there's there's nothing nothing significant. It was just it seemed like there was just one conflict after another. In fact, we were on vacation. And I don't know if I said this verbally, but I know I thought it. I know I thought it. I I, I may have mentioned to Marcy something along these lines. I wonder, I wonder what we're going back to. When we returned, the only way I can say it, the, the dam was breached. And it was conflict, challenge, push, hurt, wound, accusation. Everything that you can possibly imagine. And then and then some. And I mean this sincerely. These are all relational things. These are all with people that we had put our trust in. We loved them. We had been pouring out our lives into their lives for almost five years. And now we are seeing people who we believed were really close friends of ours, who were very close associates of ours working with us. Just what is happening? What's going on? I'm telling you, we were hurt badly. There's no way to minimize it. Now, let me just be absolutely clear. There was no moral, ethical, doctrinal misstep whatsoever. Zero. They simply didn't like us. Now, let me back, let me change that. They simply didn't like now, frankly, I don't know what's not to like. I don't get that, but, you know, that's, that's their thing. But that's what it was. They didn't like anything, and they made it very clear. Now, when I say the word they, I don't want, I don't want this to be misunderstood because it was not the entire congregation. In fact, it was an extraordinarily small group. And if I can be perfectly frank... It was two people who influenced the rest to make a decision. But regardless of that, it was the betrayal, the sting of that, that cut deeply into our hearts. The reality was we felt betrayed. There, there's no way to say it. We felt betrayed. The, we were emotionally exhausted. We were, we were physically spent. In fact, I wrote in my journal... I said, God, this has got to cease. I, I've got to get some sleep, no, not no sleep at all. Just lay awake at night and just and I would ask questions like, "Why is this happening? What have What have I done? What have we done to deserve this?" In fact, one of my staff, as I'm explaining to my staff what has happened, she looked across at me. She said, and she kind of shook her head and said, "I I, I can't believe we're sitting here. I can't believe we're having this." Car. What? there was disbelief in everybody that was connected well to make a long story short we ended up leaving that position and with no place to go had no idea what was next had no i had no future i had no future plans that was that was my future but it's all gone so i had a decision to make what am i going to do what am i going to do now and it's not so much about the what as what is my what? How am I going to respond to this? Because here's something I want you to understand. Every one of us here today, under the sound of my voice, in this room, online, however you might be, hearing me. All of us are going to experience betrayal at some level during the course of our life. And it's not about the betrayal as much as it is how do I respond to it. All of us are going to be there. And, and, and so when I think about this, it's, for me, it was this word resentment kept coming to the forefront. Resentment. I was betrayed, and the outcome for me is resentment. And I'm going to read you a rather lengthy definition, or not really, it's really not so much a definition as it is a, an application or an understanding of how deep resentment is. Resentment is the harboring of animosity against a person or a group of people whom I have... Who I feel have mistreated me. Unresolved anger that over a negative event which occurred in my past life, seething, aching turmoil I feel whenever a certain person or event is discussed. Lack of forgiveness, the root of distrust and suspicion I have when dealing with people or events that brought me pain in the past. Unresolved grief I experience when I find it difficult to accept a loss. Result of being heartbroken after exerting a great deal of effort and energy to achieve something that eventually was lost to me, result of feeling that I was unjustly victimized with no resolution to the problem, long-term suffering and silence with an open expression of hurt and unwanted and that's uninvited, a cancer robbing me of contentment in life, a grudge I hold against a person or group of people whom I feel has kept me from achieving, feeling offended but silent when I believe that a person or group of people have ignored or denied my rights, the root of my depression. Do you notice the $100 words, the hot button words in there, words like animosity, anger, turmoil, depressed? Do you see that resentment is a root of so many different maladies that can grow in so many different directions, so I've got to deal with it appropriately. I've got to ask God's help to figure out what I do when betrayal happens. And I'm going to tell you again, if it hasn't, it will. If you're beyond it, wonderful, but it's coming around again. Because human nature has a tendency To continue to bring hurt and wounds, so we're going to talk about that a while this morning, and how Joseph, who was betrayed, how he responded to it. Look at Genesis thirty-seven. It's in your notes, also on the screen. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of seventeen, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, sons of Zilpah, his father's wives and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. i talk about three things to kind of unpack this story. The first is this, a family with flaws. A family with flaws. Now you can trace a lot of the dysfunction that's in this family back to even Joseph's great-grandfather. But let me just for a moment unpack a little bit of the dysfunction that was in his dad's life. His dad's name means kind of deceiver or supplanter. Well, he had a twin brother. His name was Esau. He stole Esau's birthright over a bowl of beans or stew or lentils or something. Well, then he deceived him to get his blessing. Well, his mom sent him off to his family, his, her family, to find a wife. Well, he met a deceiver-in-chief by the name of Laban. This was his mother's brother. So when he begins to work for Laban, he said, Hey, look, you've got, you've got a really pretty daughter. Her name's Rachel. I'll work for you for seven years if I get Rachel's hand in marriage. He goes, Sounds good to me. So he does it and the fact the scripture says it was like a day went by and he gets to marry Rachel. So they go to the wedding, he gets up the next morning after the wedding night and who's there? Not Rachel. Leah, the older sister. Now here's just the way I'm going to tell you. Rachel was hot. Leah was not. He really liked Rachel but Leah is what he ended up with. So he's been betrayed, hasn't he? Well You move the story along, Rachel's loved, Leah isn't so much, but Leah can have children, Rachel can't. So Rachel says, hmm, I have an idea, take my servant and build a family through her. That was culturally okay to do that. So he did that. Well, then Rhea said, well, wait a minute. If that's going to happen, here's my servant. Build another family. So he's doing this. And then Leah said, you know something? You've been spending, speaking to, J- speaking to Jacob, you've been spending too much time with my sister. I'm going to hire I've hired you for the night. I've rented you for, okay, can I just stop right here? This is messed up. Okay, this is messed up. They put a capital D in dysfunction when it comes to family. That's what Joseph's dealing with. Now, some of it has passed by, but understand what's happening. Jacob, his father, has said, you're my favorite. Why? Because it was the favorite, the oldest son of the favorite wife. That's messed up too. So now we see a lot of resentment beginning to build in the lives of his brothers. Joseph was 17 years old. Now, you got to give him a little bit of a pass when he says, I had a dream, and this is what's going to happen, and you know, all of these things. He's a little immature. Okay, I get it. 17-year-olds can be a little immature, except for all the 17-year-olds that are in the house today. You are not, mature. You are not immature. You are great. We got you. The point is, it's, you get a little bit of that immaturity. You understand that. Maybe he shouldn't have said what he said, but there shouldn't have been the reaction and the response that his brothers brought down on him. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But why am I talking about this dysfunction? Because this was a flawed family. However, hear this. God uses flawed people to share hope to a flawed world. Not one of us in this room are perfect, myself included. The Apostle Paul would say it very well. Take a good look, friends. And I love the way the message has paraphrased this. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose those quote-unquote nobodies, that's an encouraging word, isn't it, to expose the hollow pretensions of the quote-unquote somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by by blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. The point is is that we are all flawed people, but God uses flawed people to bring hope to a flawed world. We can learn that from their family. The second thought of how do we unpack this is from privilege to the pit. From privilege to the pit. Genesis chapter 37, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, let me just stop. Jacob had sent Joseph out, find your brothers, they're herding the sheep. Go out and find him. So he did. And he's dressed in his this wonderful coat, this beautiful coat that he's made, that his father has made for him. And so now we read so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. The cistern was empty where there was when there was no water in it. So pit number one is an actual pit. He is moved from a son of privilege, now he is in a well, a dry well. He is in a pit. Can you imagine what's going through the mind of this young man? What have I done to deserve this? His brothers have betrayed him. His family has betrayed him. He is sitting in a pit. They had even conspired to kill him. But then they decided to sell him into slavery and then lie about what happened to his father. They have betrayed their brother. Family. Betrayal. Pit number two. Pit number two, Genesis 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, Joseph, the privileged son, is now in pit number two. Now, this is a little bit more of a a figurative pit, but the point is it's a pit nonetheless. He is a slave. He has gone from the privileged son to a slave out of a physical pit into a metaphorical pit. Slavery. He becomes, now I'm going to use a few puns this morning, but just for the sake of our conversation, he becomes the pit boss. Now the point of that is he is the top slave in a home of slaves. Potiphar would commit, he committed everything to him. You've got run of the house. Make it happen. And everything the scripture tells us prospered under his leadership. But he is in a pit. He is a slave. He belongs physically to another family. Now, in the process of this, Mrs. Potiphar takes a liking to Joseph, says that he's handsome and well built. She propositions him day after day after day, to which Joseph says, No, I'm not going to do it. This would be dishonoring to God and dishonoring to you. I'm not going to do this. He maintained his character through it all. But you see what happens now? Mrs. Potiphar betrays him. She says, This is what has happened. This this slave you have brought among us has made sport of me. And so, Potiphar, in order to save face, and there's a, a lot of evidence that leads to the fact that when Potiphar is very angry in this text, he's not angry at Joseph, but he's angry at his wife because he knows her compromised character. How do I know that? Because of where Joseph ended up. He ends up in prison. That's another pit. But where is the prison? Genesis chapter 40 tells us that the prison that he was sent to was the king's prison, which was in the house of the captain of the guard. Who is the captain of the guard? Potiphar. You see, there's betrayal happening that causes him to lose a, one position of top slave or pit boss into another position of slavery and pit boss. He is in the third pit in a very short period of time. It is pit to pit to pit. Pit number three is found in Genesis chapter 40. I'm not going to take the time to read it. You can read it on your own encourage you to do so read the entire story genesis 37 to 50 it's a great story the third betrayal is a bit more subtle he's in prison two of the king's prisoners comes by the cup baker and the ba- the cupbearer and the baker they've displeased pharaoh they have dreams they explain those dreams to joseph he is able to interpret the dreams he says this is what's going to happen and then i will read this last part of it when he says tell me your dreams but then he says, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison. And they forget him. They're betrayed. He's betrayed again. And how is that a betrayal? Because we pin our hopes on what we have said to someone. Someone has committed something to us. There is a hope that's put out in front. And it's just swept away. The rug is pulled out from under us. And he sits in a prison for two more Years. And I want to just let you know, sometimes it seems as if, especially when you're in the pit, it's never going to end. You're never going to get out of this. You get out of one and you find yourself in another. And and I want to tell you, that's exactly how Marcy and I felt. We went from one very, very, what we thought, thought was a healthy situation into a place that I can't describe other than just being a pit of despair, with lots of implications to that. The rug was pulled out from under us. And, and here's what I see, and here's another little pun for you. Here's what I see in Joseph's full life. It's a full life of pits, as it were. You ready? We are either, for all of us, we are either pre-pit, in the pit, post-pit, because pit happens. Let me tell you something. That's the truth. You say, Gary, is it coming again my way? Probably. But I'm just, I'm in the middle of one right now. What do I do? Or I'm free of it. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we are either pre-pit, in the pit, or post-pit. There isn't a fourth option. It's just the way life is. It's the nature of individuals, unfortunately, to be hurtful in what we say and do. God, forgive me if I have wounded and hurt someone of any intent whatsoever that I would bring them into a place where they feel like I have betrayed them. All of us should be in that same place. God, forgive us. Our pit of despair due to betrayal can come from a variety of places. None of us in the room are exempt from it. Jonah found himself in the belly of a fish. That was his pit. And in fact, if you read the story of Jonah, he says here, and this is my paraphrase, here I am, I've got seaweed wrapped around my head. God, what's going on? Really? Jeremiah was actually in a pit. In fact, the, the pit was dry, but there was enough mud that he had sunk up to his waist that they had tried to get him out before he died knows what a pit is. David was in a pit. And listen to what David wrote in Psalm 40. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me out as I walked along. I want you to know if you are in the pit today, there is one way out. God is the one who is able to bring you out and put you on a solid place. He illustrates it again and again and again in Scripture. So Joseph's life, and this is point number three, from the pits of the palace. Joseph's life has been in the pits for 13 years. Time is 17 to the age 30. And Psalm 40 and verse number 1 and 2 that I just read really becomes real time for Joseph. That, that he's going to be brought out of the mire and the mud, and he's going to be set in a very solid place. You see, what we discover in his life and responses is not, and hear this carefully, it's not. Poison emotion that eats away at a person's peace of mind. Mental well-being and ability to treat others well. Joseph did not respond that way. He did, not re- he did not get angry with God. We never see it in the text. He did not blame his brother. He didn't blame anyone. He just accepted where he was. And he, we learn from that ways in which we can respond to betrayal and the resentment that follows it. So I'm going to give you six things. The first is this. How do we move ourselves away? How do we respond when we're betrayed? And resentment is something that follows. First, learn to be content. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Say, wait a second. got to be kidding me. You do not know. You don't know the level of betrayal. You don't know how much it hurts. You don't know the depth of my pit. Here's one time I can say, Yes, I do. Yes, I do. As I will tell you, we went into isolation after everything happened to us. We hid from everybody. I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to be seen. The amount of tears, questions, trying to put our put, try, put, trying to put our arms around what happened. We couldn't. And. I had no idea what was going to happen next. I'm going to tell you something absolutely true. It doesn't speak it in the text, but I believe it to be absolutely true. When Joseph is sitting in a dry cistern, and he's yelling and screaming at his brothers to get him out, I'm sure he's saying, I don't know what's going to happen next. The Midianites take him into slavery. I don't know what's going to happen next. He's in Potiphar's house. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. He's in prison. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. Every time he turns around, Understand, he never blamed, he never placed the blame anywhere else, but rather he accepted where he was. There's another man who was in a pit, and this is what he wrote. In fact, it was a Roman prison. Philippians 4, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That was Joseph's story. When he was in Potiphar's house, what did he do? He rose to the top. And he worked well for the glory of God. When he was in prison, he was the top. And then he moves from the prison to the palace. And he is second in charge of the nation of Egypt. He was content. Second, we learned to be content. Second is that we need to acknowledge that God is writing a new story. And that story is in your life. God has plans for you far beyond what maybe you see at this moment. Now, Genesis chapter 41, what we read is we read the story of Joseph and the naming of his sons. Look at this. Before the years of famine came, and let me stop. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with the story, how Joseph got into the palace was he could interpret dreams. And Pharaoh had, had a dream. I see seven years of, I see, I see seven you know, healthy cows and I see seven skinny. And he's trying to figure out how this all works. Well, what it was, it was, a, it was a complex dream that said there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And then Joseph proposed the idea, you need to find somebody who can administrate this. Joseph was selected. He did it. Now, he marries into a very prominent family. He, be, he moves from literally a slave in the prison to an to the aristocracy, as it were, of Egypt. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to him. Born to Joseph by Aseneth, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. It was a prominent family. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It's because God made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim. Who, where he said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Now, my name is Gary. My name means spear carrier. Whatever. I've never carried a spear in my life. So I, I don't know what that, I know that goes back a long time. I get that. Now, I'm okay with my name, Gary. It's, that's cool. But what it means, eh, I wish I could have something you know, a little bit more dramatic, You know, I suppose. Little different when Joseph named his children because it meant something to him. Notice the names again, Manasseh. It is because God has made me forget all of my trouble in my father's household. He is writing a new story. He has acknowledged there is a new story being written. God is doing something in my life. And then the second one, I love this name, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. I want you to know something. You have walked through betrayal and when we respond appropriately, when we understand that God is writing a new story, it changes everything. God is doing things in our lives right now in the midst of betrayal or maybe you're in the middle of the pit that is absolutely, you don't get it, you don't understand it, but God is in the process of writing a new story. Every time Joseph would mention the boys' names, He understood that God was writing something new in his life. God has made me forget my trouble. God has made me fruitful where I am. I want you to know that God is able to write a new story in each one of us. I'm grateful for that. It is absolutely so critical for me to understand that he's writing a new story. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6 says, God is the one, God is the one who began this good work in you and I am certain that he won't stop before he completes before it is complete on the day that Christ Jesus returns he's writing a new story the third way is to prepare and to believe for closure I don't know a couple days ago I was moving a stick of all things a simple little stick and got a splinter on my finger and we've all done things like that we have a blister or we have a little cut or something and it's just annoying and it just it's always there It just keeps irritating, and it hurts, and you always feel it. But you know what I did? I went home, like most of us would do, and I grabbed the tools of splinter extraction, which would be a sewing needle and a pair of tweezers. And so I'm digging at my finger and getting it all done, and it hurts. Every time it hurts, it still hurts. But here's what I was doing. I was preparing for that to be healed. I was getting it ready, and I got the splinter out, and then I hit it with some peroxide, and I put a Band-Aid on it. What was I doing? I was preparing for closure. I was preparing for it to heal. And you say, well, how does that happen in Joseph's life? How is that that I can put that into practice in a way that I can deal with the betrayal and the resentment? Here's how it all works. Now, when when the boys came, the brothers come to see Joseph because the famine has struck where they are too. They're coming to get food. Now, read the story. You'll see it. When the brothers show up, Joseph immediately recognizes them. But they don't recognize him. Joseph is more Egyptian now than he is Hebrew. And he puts it on really well. But then he just, he just lays it out for these guys. It is, so, it is so fun. They have no idea. And they're speaking Hebrew back and forth to each other. And Joseph understands everything they're saying. But he gives no indication that he does. Now why is it significant? Because Joseph poses a test for them. He poses a test of loyalty because he had a younger brother named Benjamin. Now remember, he was betrayed by these brothers. He is going to see, is that level of betrayal going to continue? Is it continuing in the life of my brother? I'm going to find out before I do anything with these guys. I'm going to find out whether they have changed their tune or not. Well, gratefully, they did. Now, understand something. Again, I'm not going to take the time to read this. It's a long passage of Scripture in Genesis 45, verses 1 to 5. But essentially what it is, he reveals himself to his brothers, and they have this great moment of homecoming and rejoicing once they understand who it is. Now, the whole thing that Joseph put into it, do you think that he did that by spur of the moment? No. I don't think for one moment it was spur of the moment. I believe he planned, he prepared, he got ready. And I'll tell you why. Because probably every one of us in the room have said something just like this. If I ever have the chance to speak to this person again, this is what I'm going to do. And I think Joseph rehearsed it over and over and over again. If I ever have a chance to see my brothers again, this is what I'm going to do. He was preparing, but I add this other word. He was preparing and believing for closure. Can I encourage you? Prepare for the time when you have an opportunity to bring closure to a betrayal or the difficulty of resentment. Now, three different occasions for Marcy and I. Two for three for me and one for her in, in a specific way, did I have the opportunity for closure? Pretty soon after all of this had happened to us, I was at the bank and standing in line, and one of the guys who was very instrumental in our departure was standing there and he turned around and saw me and I went up and I greeted him, shook his hand. He said, I didn't think you'd even talk to me. And I said, of course I'm gonna talk to you. And we had a good conversation for probably, you know, I don't know, three or four minutes. Some years later, I was in San Diego and I was there to see, to get our taxes done. Our tax guy's still there, so I'd come back. San Diego was visiting with Amanda, our daughter. We went to breakfast as we normally did and before, as we're walking up to Janet's Cafe, outside was one of the, uh, another man who had been very instrumental in our demise, I guess you could say, sitting there having breakfast. He didn't see me, but I saw him. And I just walked straight to him. He saw me. I stood up, shook his hand, gave him a hug, asked him how he's doing, how's his wife, how's his family, and went on. On our, thir- on our 35th, 35th wedding anniversary, we decided to take a cruise to Alaska. Big anniversary. Big trip. Who decides to go on the cruise? But the seniors group from that church were on that same cruise. How delightful. We're going to spend seven days locked up on a boat with these folks. Now, I make that a little bit more dramatic than it actually was. We were able to embrace, able to spend time. Closure. But I knew that there would come a time when I would need to bring closure. And God gave us the grace to be able to do that. Number four. So number three, prepare and believe for closure. Number four, admit God is working to accomplish his purposes. Admit it. And that's a hard one. On the Sunday that I stepped aside as the lead pastor of this church, I read this verse. Proverbs sixteen verse nine we make our own we make our plans, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps now when I said that verse publicly i didn't fully understand its implications because i didn't know where I was going to be the next day, literally, but I believed it to be true, I still believe it to be true and the thing is here's what's really. I, I kind of did it on a super, not super spiritual, but more of a spiritual line than probably a personal line. I was trying to figure out how it all worked. I believed it, but there hadn't been a reality to that. But, but what's so interesting to me is I look back at the life of Joseph. God was, in God. Was, first of all, God was involved in our every step. I, I didn't see it at the time, but God was involved. On four different occasions in Genesis chapter 45, Joseph says this, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. We need to be in a place where when betrayal happens and rather than being resentful, we need to admit that God is at work accomplishing his purposes. We may not see the end result. We may not fully understand it. But I'm going to tell you very as practically as I can say it. Marcy and I would not be the pastors at Crossroads Church if all those years ago that had not happened to us. This was the plan of God. I do not know what pit you're in. I do not know the difficulty, but I want you to know God will accomplish his purpose. Purposes in your life. Understand, this is what we started with. God will accomplish his purposes in the long term, even though, even though it can be uncomfortable in the short term. And I will tell you, we went through years of uncomfortable. But I will tell you, God is accomplishing his purpose in our life, and he will do the same for you. I have no doubt in my mind. Number five is to forgive. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Everything is okay up until now. You just crossed a line, dude. Can't do it. Because you don't know how much it hurts. You don't know how deep the pit is. You don't know the severity of the wound. Well, I may not know your context, but I do know this. Colossians 3, make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Now before, you are already ahead of me because you're reading it, so I get it but we need to stop there. that there's some very powerful words right there. make allowance for each other's faults. nobody in this room is perfect. nobody. we're all flawed. but then Paul goes on and he says and forgive anyone who offends you. that's family. that's workmates. that's neighbors. that's whatever you can add to it. anyone. anyone anyone and here is the bottom line. Remember the Lord forgave you. So we must forgive others. Now, can I just say, you don't have to answer this, but I'll just say it for me. I'm glad God forgave me. I'm glad that God doesn't keep revisiting the same things over and over with me. No, it's done. He forgives. And that's how we are, to forgive. To forgive, says Lewis Smetis, to forgive is to set a prisoner free. Then you discover that the prisoner was you. Sets us free when we forgive. In Luke 6, Jesus said this. It's so so powerful. It's a great process of forgiveness. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who are cruel to you. Just to be clear, it's really hard to harbor resentment against anyone when you do as Jesus said, to love them, to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who are cruel to you. That's the way we do it. And forgiveness will become more and more a natural part of our experience. And number six, ask the right question. Ask the right question. If you haven't noticed, I've do i I've already said it, I love Joseph's story, and I received great encouragement from it, coming out of our pit experience, I guess you could say. But what I see in him through his life and actions is he was asking the right question. What's the right question? I'll tell you that in a minute. The wrong question is this, why me? Why me? Because it's common experience for all of us. The right question is, what next? What next? And we point this to God. We say, God, help me here. I I don't like my conditions. I don't like the pit. This stinks. I don't like it. You know it's okay to say that to God? And then say, okay, God, I don't like it. But what's next? Help me discover what's next. What do you have for me? This past week, the, the kids doing the BBS stuff, man, it was life is wild and God is good. So it was scary and changing and sad and, and afraid, and, and, afraid and, and God is good God. And they were screaming as loud as they could possibly. I would say that. You know, I'd get up here and say, life is sad. When life is sad, they go, God is good. It's a place to just roar. We had people in the back closing their ears off. It was just, it was hilarious. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. But the truth is, life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, God is good. Romans 8, you may know this verse. But it's important to hear it again. And we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Marcy and I would not be here, as I said, if it wasn't for what happened to us all those years ago. God has used all of those experiences to bring us where we are today. One more verse that has helped us, and that's Psalm 51, verse 12. To grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We have to be willing to accept where we are and to acknowledge what God is doing in our lives. God, by his grace and goodness, has helped us to find closure and to bring that whole episode of our life to a good place. Does it mean, and I, I didn't say this earlier, but it needs, to be, it needs to be said, forgiveness doesn't mean that we forget stuff. I still remember what happened, as you can hear. I, I remember it. And every time I talk about it, I don't talk about it a lot, but every time I talk about it, it gets very raw for me. I understand that. It gets raw. It hurts. It hurt, And there's still times that I'll find myself in a place of hurt. But I always look back and say, God accomplished some great things in me through it. Would I want to do it again? Uh Uh-uh. But I'm grateful that God has brought us to where we are. As I stated earlier, all of us have been betrayed at some level. And you say, but Gary, I really haven't. I really haven't. My life has been pretty good. And I'm grateful for that, but the truth is, we all have been betrayed. Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree of the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, or, you'll, or you, if you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. You'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced, so she took some fruit and ate it. Gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Every one of us in this room would have been betrayed. Satan betrayed us. He betrayed us by promising something that wasn't true. He was very, very clear in his approach to Eve. He betrayed us by lying, by deceiving. And ever since that moment in time, we have carried the DNA of sin. We've been betrayed. We've been betrayed. The Apostle Paul would say it this way. He said, there's no one that's righteous, not even one. We've all sinned, all of us. And I ha- and Paul said it best. He said, and I'm the chief of all those sinners. I'm the guy that's the head of the line. So I could just say with him, I'm, out, I'm there too. I'm there too, every one of us. He goes on and he talks about this, and he makes it very, very clear He said, not only have we all sinned, he said this, but the wages, the wages of sin, that which we are paid because of sin, wages of sin is death. What? And that's where Satan deceived. He told Eve, you're not going to die. Physical death at that moment? No. But there was a separation between them and God. We were betrayed. But you know, if I stopped there and just like, wow, man, I, I'm in the I go to church and I'm in the pit. And this is terrible. I you know, we've been talking about pits, we've been talking about church, but now I'm in the pit. I mean, come on, dude. dude it's, it doesn't work. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says it this way: The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The deepest pit you will ever be in and the one that you cannot pull yourself out of is the pit of sin. There is only one way out of that pit and that is through Christ. I don't want you to live there. I don't want you to be there. But I want you to to hear what's available to you. And to me, the psalmist would write it this way. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sin and heals all your diseases. Here it is. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. That's what I desire for every one of us in the room today. Jesus, thank you. We bow our heads before you today. Grateful that you love us, you haven't given up on us. Thank you. Lord, some of us are in the pit today some of us are in the, in the pit of sin. We, we can't, and we can't pull ourselves out no matter what we do. And I pray, Lord, for each of those friends this morning that they would just say, Jesus, pull me out. Pull me out. Pull me out. So, Lord, I pray to that end.